Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Midterm elections in New England brought back some familiar faces. The next two years are going to be a little bit different, but that's okay. That is the work that lies ahead in these four years. You told us to focus on the work and not the noise, to work across the aisle, to chase the best ideas wherever they came from, and to find common ground. And some historic firsts not just only about our voices. It's also about the new people that we've engaged. There is too much at stake here to fall back on the old ways. I pledge as your governor to think anew. This is so much bigger than me. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll discuss election results from around our region. And mostly white Vermont has one of the highest African-American incarceration rates in the nation. Is it that black and brown people are just inherently more criminal? Or... Is there a problem with this system? Plus, we'll learn about the role that New England colonists played in the golden age of piracy. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Denkowski. Thanks for joining us. All six New England states held elections for governor this past week. Incumbent Democrat Gina Raimondo held on to her job in Rhode Island, and two open seats were grabbed by Democrats, Ned Lamont in Connecticut and Janet Mills in Maine. The three Republican incumbents in New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Vermont were all reelected. But the big news might be that now all six state legislatures are fully in Democratic control. Here's Vermont Governor Phil Scott from his victory speech. In electing a governor of one party and a legislature by another, The message Vermonters have sent to us tonight is clear. Work together. So what does this partisan breakdown mean for regional politics? We called up James Pindle, a political reporter from the Boston Globe. He started by talking about how New England's Republican governors differ from most national Republicans in their stance toward President Donald Trump. You know, two in particular, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, the most popular governor in America, the one of the biggest problems the Democrat had running against Charlie Baker is that he could not call Charlie Baker a sort of real national Republican. And so our debate suddenly became, was he anti-Trump enough? (laughs) In Vermont, uh, Phil Scott began sort of as a traditional Republican, obviously a successful businessman who ran a tactically good campaign for his first term. But this time around in this year, he became defined by supporting a gun control legislation that kind of made him, again, a different type of Republican. And a lot of the Trump-type Republicans that do exist in Vermont left him. So it helped his branding and how he was in relationship to that. So that's sort of what the Trump is still this defining feature in these midterms. One of the interesting pieces of this now that the election is over is we get to think about what this means for actual governance because, well, this is what these governors are supposed to do. Republican incumbent Chris Sununu uh, spoke to the people of New Hampshire on Tuesday night. He lost the legislature in New Hampshire, so he's going to be working with a, a different sort of legislature than he was before. Let's listen to Chris Sununu here. 
The next two years are going to be a little bit different, but that's okay. That's New Hampshire, right? Anybody who has ideas is invited to the table. Anybody who thinks that they can move the ball forward, get results for the people in New Hampshire, come on into the office. We are open arms to everybody. That is the difference that we're really trying to bring, not just to New Hampshire, but the example we are hopefully sending for the rest of the country. James, that's where I want to pick that up. How you see these governors actually governing over the course of the next couple of years and whether or not this style of Republican, the type embodied by these these three moderates who have to work with Democrats, whether or not that does actually have some influence on the Republican Party across the nation. That last example from Chris Sununu is actually going to be very interesting to your question. And how exactly is he going to navigate this? He had total control. Republicans had total control in Concord. They could do whatever they wanted. They passed some pretty tough legislation that really pleased the Republican base. But now Chris Sununu needs to decide if he's going to stand up and use Democrats in the legislature as a foil, or if he will decide to basically cede a lot of power, work with them, and become being known as a bipartisan governor, not just for his own reelection, but not that we have to continue to talk about politics, but there's an election coming up uh, in two years. <laughs> I know one just ended. And he's going to be looked at to run potentially for U.S. Senate in 2020 against Gene Shaheen. And if he does so, he will want to increase his profile as a moderate. In Maine, a Democrat won the governor's seat. Janet Mills, the attorney general there, here she is speaking on Tuesday night. You know, there is too much at stake here to fall back on the old ways. I pledge as your governor to think anew, to act anew, to begin anew, starting now. And when she's talking about the old ways, she's talking about the old ways from the last governor, Paul LePage, a very, very different sort of governor. I guess one question is, what do you take away from Janet Mills' win in this race, James? The other question is, is this the last we've seen in New England of a Paul LePage-type politician leading a state? Well, I'm glad we're talking about it because the results in Maine are the most dramatic in terms of state houses that we've seen in the entire region. It's not just that the page is gone and we have a Democrat. It's that, you know, the Republicans had slight majority in the state Senate. There were some big pieces of legislation like Medicaid expansion that the voters in Maine voted on in a referendum and the, and the governor blocked. So there's going to be some major changes happening in Maine because Democrats now have the House, the Senate, and the governorship, and that's going to be a pretty dramatic way of changing things in a way that you know we really are basically seeing the status quo throughout the rest of New England. James Pindle covers politics for the Boston Globe. Thanks so much for joining us, James. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Election Day also produced some historic results, including the victories of Ayanna Presley and Johanna Hayes, who are now the first two black women to represent our region in Congress. Presley spoke to WBUR's Morning Edition on the morning after her election about the importance of diversity in elected officials. Anytime we're engaging more diverse voices, or or just a diversity of voices, a diversity of perspective and opinion and thought uh, in the corridors of power and around the policy and decision-making tables, uh, we're all better for it. And in her victory speech, Hayes emphasized the importance of her win to those who are traditionally underrepresented in politics. This is so much bigger than me. This is about all of them grabbing a little piece of that and seeing themselves in it and know that they, too, can make history. 
Kalila Brown-Dean is an associate professor of political science at Quinnipiac University. She's here to discuss what these victories mean. Kalila, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me. How significant is this? I think it's major, not just for Congress, but for these two states that have had a history of battles over issues of race and also gender and class to now elect these two women. It's also a moment for us to reflect and ask ourselves why it took us until 2018 to break this kind of barrier. And what will it mean for candidates who come after Ayanna Presley and Johanna Hayes? You know, it's interesting. I want to get back to that second question and what it does mean that we took so long. But I want to talk about these individual women because these are very different stories. Ayanna Presley, a very popular and a very powerful Boston City Councilwoman. She's someone who built a political career, and she's going to represent the 7th Congressional District in Massachusetts, which is the only majority-minority district in that entire state. So in some ways, she's the perfect candidate to take that leap because she's really made a career of serving the people in that district. She's made a career serving the people in the district, but she's also had to fight some really tough battles within communities of people saying, we're okay with having an African-American representative, but we're not sure about having an African-American woman. And part of the story overall is that often we equate women's leadership with white women and we equate black leadership with black men. So Ayanna Presley has faced those battles both within and across communities and really established herself as a politician who can build those bridges. Now, Johanna Hayes in Connecticut, not a politician. She comes from a very different background. She grew up in Waterbury, Connecticut. She was a single mom. She was a teenage mom. Uh, She had a lot of uh, poverty and troubles in her background, and she rose up to become the National Teacher of the Year. This is a, a different path to Congress. It's a different path to Congress, but it's also the American dream, that here is someone who worked really hard, who invested in education, invested in herself, and didn't give up. That is a story that I think is most familiar to people. Not everyone has a position handed to them. Not everyone inherits money and resources and connections to be able to do that. I think her approach to issues in Congress may be different from Presley's, but it will come from the same perspective of community empowerment, not just self-advancement. So what does it say about old stodgy New England, which is also blue progressive New England, that it took us this long to finally have black women serving in Congress. It seems as though in 2018 that's something that probably could have happened by now. It could have happened and it should have happened, but it didn't. And we have to ask the question of why. You know, as someone who grew up in Virginia, we always thought of the North as being this progressive place. And then we realize in many ways New England is simply up South. So at the same time that we're electing these women in Massachusetts and Connecticut, you had a black woman representative in Vermont decide not to continue running because of the death threats that she received and that her family received. So while you have two candidates, two places that have embraced that difference, there are still places across New England where difference is seen as a threat. And when you disrupt the status quo, people respond in bizarre ways. And I'll say, you're a black woman from the South. 
in academia yes. in New England, the heart of academia mm-hmm. in America. Mm-hmm. So you you speak from some experience, I'm sure. I do. So I've experienced that of, of people questioning my ability. You know, I still have people who can't believe that I'm a tenured professor and they think it's a compliment to say, oh, you're so articulate. Well, I do have a PhD. So that, that usually comes with the territory. But part of how I approach this and how these women as candidates are approaching it is, Understanding that this is different for many people and how do you find that common ground? That's even more important in politics because you want to get things done. You don't want to just be there because of who you are, but because of what you do. We had a couple of other first Janet Mills, the attorney general of the state of Maine, becomes the first female governor of that state, taking over for Paula Page. And Chris Pappas, a Democrat, becomes the first openly gay member of Congress from the state of New Hampshire. So there's more firsts there, Kalila, Mm -hmm. and it seems to track across the country. We see an awful lot of diversity sweeping across elected officials in America and also here in New England. So Johanna Hayes was criticized for saying that if Congress starts to look like us, they can't stop us. And what we're seeing is that the us represents so many groups. We are all members of multiple groups at once. So this intersectional approach of saying, let's look at race, let's look at gender, let's look at gender identity, let's look at sexual orientation and understand that everyone has gifts to bring to these spaces. And how do we create spaces? How do we create institutions that affirm that and don't try to limit what we expect of people, especially across partisan lines? But that's really interesting, too, because when someone says, I want representatives that look like us and you're a black woman, the first thing that most of white America thinks is, well, she must be talking about Mm -hmm. blacks and women. But it's these multiple varied stories Mm -hmm. that we don't, I guess, have time for when we have these quick political conversations that we're always having. We want quick bites and quick hits. I need to be able to put you into a box and make a shortcut to determine, are you like me? Are you not like me? And can I trust you with my vote? We live varied intersectional lives, but politics tries to make us choose that. So I always say when people respond negatively to a Johanna Hayes comment about Congress looking like us, what is it about that comment that offends you? Do you see that saying it should look like us makes you feel like you're not included? And that's a bias. So we all have biases. That's a bias that we have to interrogate. This country is changing. It's changing in remarkable ways. And we can either embrace that change or be fearful of it. I choose to embrace it. I guess I'm just wondering what you think this looks like in a couple years if we're not talking so much about firsts, but we're talking about New England representation in Congress and in state houses that looks a little bit more like the new New England. Right. So it's great to be the first. It's detrimental to be the only. Mm. And that is where I think these candidates face a challenge. So that if you break this barrier and you're the first in that structure, but you're not working in a way to substantively represent the interests of people in New England, it really doesn't matter. And you end up being a one-term candidate or one-term politician who can't convert that into strength. And these candidates enter into institutions that are often hostile Mm -hmm. to their very presence. They have to build coalitions. They have to work across barriers because at the end of the day, that's what gets you back into office. Kalila Brown-Dean is Associate Professor of Political Science at Quinnipiac University. Kalila, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks, John. That story the professor told about the Vermont lawmaker who resigned after threats? Well, we'll be coming back to that in our next segment as we try to answer a tricky question about race in the Green Mountain State. It's next. 
Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Vermont has one of the lowest incarceration rates in the country, but one of the highest rates of African-American incarceration. According to data from the research and advocacy group, The Sentencing Project, the black-white disparity in Vermont's incarceration rate is higher than Maine, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, New York, and Connecticut. So why is this? That's what listener Rosie Chase asked Brave Little State, Vermont Public Radio's people-powered podcast. Here's an excerpt of their most recent episode that answers this question reported by VPR's Angela Evansy and John Dillon. We're going to start by hearing from Corey Jones, who's serving time in Northern State Correctional Facility in Newport, Vermont. Angela, and Jones's attorney, Amy Davis, gave Jones a call to talk about his experiences. Uh, State Correctional Facility Officer Dwyer. Hi, it's uh, attorney Amy Davis. I'm calling to speak with my client, Corey Jones. Could you please hold just one second? Thank you. Hey, Corey. Hey. Hey, it's Amy. Um, they wouldn't let Angela into the facility, so we're sitting outside in my car and want to do the interview over the phone. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Hey, Corey, it's Angela. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you. Sorry about all the background noise, but there's a lot of people. Corey Jones is serving time in Northern State Correctional Facility in Newport. We're talking over Bluetooth in Amy Davis's Subaru. You know, I've worked with him for, I don't know, Corey, what, two years now? Corey is serving up to three years for distributing $40 worth of heroin. He was arrested in St. Johnsbury in 2016 as part of a big series of controlled buys, basically sting operations. He maintains his innocence. Well, I had my Supreme Court thing today, too. I don't know if, if you, you wouldn't hear anything about that, would you, Amy? Oh, you had your argument today? Yes. Did you get to go? No. Oh, shocker. Um, but no. no I didn't, didn't get to go. Didn't get to participate by phone or nothing. Yeah. And good afternoon again. Thank you all very much. Please be seated. Good afternoon, Your Honors. The matter before the court this afternoon is a case entitled State of Vermont versus Jones. Docket the Vermont Defender General's Office has appealed Corey Jones' case to the Vermont Supreme Court, arguing that the jury convicted him based on insufficient evidence. The attorney arguing the case, a woman named Dawn Matthews, also suggested there was bias involved. Corey is black. In light of the statistics and our continuing history of racism, both in this country and in this state, a judge has to be especially alert in a drug case with very weak facts. Don Matthews' argument was basically implicit bias 101. It's not just judges, it's prosecutors, it's defense attorneys, it's courtroom staff, it's jurors, it's everybody that has this, this kind of shorthand that works in our brains where we have a tendency to associate people of color with crime without even realizing that we're doing it. I've had nothing but problems with St. Johnsbury. Corey Jones says he experienced more than bias almost as soon as he got to St. Johnsbury in 2013. He'd moved from Florida to be near his sister in Danville, and he was looking for a job and apartment in town. He says someone on the street called him the N-word, and he ended up getting in a fight, 
and then on law enforcement's radar. I don't know. I just, it just went from there. And then it... Corey mentions one instance outside of Dunkin' Donuts. His misdemeanor charges and convictions piled up. Simple assault, violating conditions of release, violating a trespass notice. Headlines in the local paper would refer to him by name, like a person of infamy. Now, on paper, I look like some menace that's St. John's Berry. And I just don't feel that's a clear representation of who I am. And I have, I've been, look, I'm 43 years old, I've got more charges in, in, in Vermont in a year that I've been on the streets than I had my whole life in, in Florida. I don't know. I just don't feel like this state. I feel like there's some kind of stigmatism or some kind of stereotype up here because it's not a very racially diverse state. But uh, had I known that, I didn't, I didn't like look it up and see that this state's 93.3% white and I want to come up here and start my life over. I didn't look at that situation. I didn't think it would be a situation. I'm biracial as it is. My mother's white, my, my father's black, and they've been together my whole life. Now, Corey is one person living in one part of Vermont. We can't extrapolate his experience out into an answer to Rosie's question. But it's worth noting that our state is very much grappling with the presence of straight-up racism here. Today, in 2018. I had a home invasion vandalism, even the woods near my house where we go and walk frequently as a family had swastikas painted all over the trees there. You might have heard about Kaya Morris. She was the only African-American woman serving in the Vermont legislature until she resigned in September. In August, she told VPR she'd been the target of hate online and in her daily life for more than a year. Meanwhile, Vermont's lack of diversity has become a punchline. No immigrants! No minorities. This was a recent Saturday Night Live skit that spoofed a neo-Confederate meeting. An agrarian community where everyone lives in harmony because every single person is white. Yes, sir. Yeah, I know that place. That sounds like Vermont. (laughs) (laughs) That didn't go over super well here. This stuff wasn't about incarceration specifically. But even an academic who studies race and punishment took one look at Vermont's numbers and made a pretty blunt observation. You know, you have a low rate of incarceration overall, right, compared to Texas and other places, but you have a very high rate of incarceration for African Americans. So, yeah, that that would say, relative to other places, even Texas, that Vermont's just more racist. John Eason is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Wisconsin, and before that, Texas A&M University. To be fair, he's never been to Vermont, but it's striking that this was his expert opinion. That's something that needs to be fixed in the culture there. So what is it about Vermont? That's the question I have. It's the same question Rosie has. And as it turns out, it's a question that pretty much everyone in Vermont government and the criminal justice system has too. My colleague John Dillon is going to pick it up here. In some ways, it's the question of the moment in Vermont, but the answer is elusive. Part of the reason, according to Professor Eason, 
is that there's a lack of research into rural incarceration writ large. Rural places are often overlooked and understudied. Eason has studied black versus white incarceration in one rural state, Arkansas. And what we find is that rural towns and counties have a higher disproportionate rate of incarceration. That means rural places are more punitive for black people in Arkansas. And I think that pattern should hold, but it's difficult to get data on rural places. Eason says this is because most big research universities are in cities, and there's not much funding available to study rural places. We have a dearth, a complete absence of information nearly on what's going on in rural communities. And in the past few years, Vermont has woken up to this reality. So let's talk about a few other issues while we have the time here, Commissioner Renard. And Back in August, our colleague Jane Lindholm put Rosie's question to the Commissioner of Vermont's Department of Corrections. Lisa Menard. Here's how Menard answered. That's accurate. Vermont has a disproportionate number of African-Americans incarcerated. The why is, um, that's not a, a question I can answer. I can say that there are certainly a number of groups looking at this. Vermont State Police has done significant work in looking at their arrest practices and making, uh, they have a lot of data about race. Uh, the UVM did some research regarding that. We're looking at our own practices once somebody is incarcerated around critical decision points and how those may look. So Menard didn't have the answer, but she referenced the studies and panels galore that have been looking at this issue, far beyond just corrections. Some have examined the various points of contact that people have with the criminal justice system, long before they end up in prison, places where racial bias could occur. There's the initial interaction with police. Maybe it's a 911 call or a traffic stop. For the past few years, Stephanie Seguino of the University of Vermont has been looking at traffic stops. And in a study released in early 2017, she found that black drivers are twice as likely to be arrested after a traffic stop than whites. The results should not be surprising to anybody. I think the, the real issue here is that Vermont has taken on the challenge of being self-aware and of trying to improve policing so that it fairly treats and supports all of the communities in our state. Meanwhile, the Vermont State Police has been looking at their own practices. The effort includes training, ongoing study of racial data on traffic stops and searches, and a strong emphasis on diversity hiring. And well before an officer is hired, the state police do a background check, including on the applicant's social media presence, to try to weed out people with racist attitudes or affiliations. The thought process being we get our members from society and all of the the implicit bias, explicit bias that they have, we want to make sure that we're looking into that before they put on this uniform and are going to represent the values that we believe would make a good state trooper. Lieutenant Gary Scott is director of fair and impartial policing at the state police. He says he's the only state police officer in the country with that job title, and the unique position reflects the agency's years-long effort to be proactive to reduce bias. He says it's an ongoing process that everyone involved needs to work on. Education up front and making sure our members or whoever is the person that has the discretion is aware of all these cultural differences and can use that in a way to help guide their decisions of where cases can and cannot go. For now, 
Let's get a different perspective from a person who's looked at race and justice issues for four decades. My name is Robert Appel. I've been uh, working in law since 1977. My first seven years was as an investigator, first in the public defender's office in Barrie. Robert Appel also served as executive director of the Vermont Human Rights Commission. More recently, he's been in private practice handling many cases dealing with bias and overt racism. People find me, but it's not unique. Uh, like I say, this is sort of a niche. I'm known for, for this. Um, yeah, I just see it day in and day out. Bias at play. From his decades of experience on the fault line of race and justice, Appel has a simple explanation for what's behind the high incarceration rates for African Americans. Black faces in white places. To me, that's it. You know, it's that fundamental. You don't fit. You're not one of us. You're up to no good. It all adds up, he says, but it starts with someone drawing suspicion because of the color of their skin. If you look like you don't fit, you're going to draw attention. If you're likely to have more police contacts, it's going to result in more arrests, convictions, and criminal history. You're likely to receive a, a harsher sanction the next go-around. So it's cumulative, whether it's in-state or out-of-state. Hang on to that idea of cumulative consequences, because it's going to come up later. The courts have reviewed cases where race unjustly led to an arrest or conviction. In 2016, the state Supreme Court threw out the conviction of a young black man named Shamal Alexander, who was arrested in Bennington for possessing heroin. The court ruled that the only reason Alexander was stopped was because of his race. It's sort of an archetypal example. Bennington Police Department assumed this black man was another black man who he wasn't. Interesting side note. Before Alexander's case got dismissed, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison, which Appel says is a far longer sentence than normal for comparable possession cases. But Appel says things are getting better. He credits the Vermont State Police and the Vermont courts with paying more attention to bias issues. And he says he's learned one other fundamental thing after following cases like Alexander's for years. I've learned to trust what I hear. It's just too consistent from too many credible people. And I think it's hard for us, white people, and white men in particular, we, you know, the tendency is, it's not my experience, so it's easy to die. You know, they're playing the race card. Well, they're not. You know, just because you don't experience doesn't mean it's not happening. And denying somebody else's experience, to me, is an ultimate, I won't say the ultimate, but an ultimate form of racism. People who end up in prison move through the criminal justice system. But Appel says it's not really a system. He calls it a non-system that relies on layers and layers of discretion as weighed through very human eyes and emotions. And much of that discretion rests with judges. Chief Superior Judge Brian Grierson greets me in the marbled floor lobby of the state Supreme Court in Montpelier. Good job. Hey. How are you? I was hoping you were going to call up and say, I've got the answer, Brian. We don't have to get together, but guess not, huh? No. Oh. Grierson has worked as a prosecutor, a defense lawyer, and in his own law office. He's been a judge since 2004 and chief superior judge since 2014. Grierson also still serves as a trial judge, in part because, as he puts it, he likes to, quote, knock the rust off and work hands-on in the court system. I've been down in Rutland and sat in the treatment court. I've sat in uh, Chelsea and Newport, down in Bennington. So I, I try to sit in as many different courts and as many different dockets as I can and 
I still like it. So Grierson is a trial judge's trial judge who clearly reveres the law. He says when Vermont judges get together, they do talk about the issues that our question asker Rosie had. But when those judges gather, there are no African Americans in the room. We're we're a pretty homogeneous group here, yeah. no question. And so when someone shows up in you know in handcuffs and they don't look like us, how do you tell what that does to you? I, I don't think there's an answer to that question. I, I don't. I mean, it certainly has never been a factor for me. We see a lot of people in handcuffs, um, and the color of their skin doesn't make a difference. Grierson says he and others on the bench work hard to be colorblind in their courtrooms. He says the vast majority of criminal cases are settled with a plea bargain that includes a recommended sentence judges usually approve. And he says there may be many factors that go into sentences that affect the racial disparities in Vermont's prisons. For example, does the defendant have ties to the community? And what's their prior criminal history? The mistake is to compare one armed robbery, if you will, to another. It's an oversimplification without knowing, uh, you know, who that person is in front of you. And that's really what we, we try to ask in every case. Who are you? What brings you to this point? And all of those factors we've talked about come into play. Grierson says in some cases, Vermont judges may be dealing with bias carried over from another state. If you start the chain, just by way of example, of the stop-and-frisk policy that was prevalent in New York for some period of time. If that's violative of constitutional rights and that stop-and-frisk leads to an arrest, which leads to a detention, which leads to a conviction, uh, by the time that person may be coming to Vermont, they're coming with that record uh, that may in itself be based in part on uh, racial factors that aren't present in Vermont. That's from the most recent episode of Vermont Public Radio's people-powered podcast, Brave Little State, where reporters Angela Evansy and John Dillon answer the question, why are there so many African Americans incarcerated in Vermont? And is the rate higher here in Vermont than in most other states? You can find a link to the full episode on nextnewengland.org. Coming up, we'll explore the role New England played in the golden age of pirates. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. When you think of pirates, you might think of the skull and crossbones, wooden legs, parrots, eye patches, and marauders swashbuckling their way through the Caribbean. But New England, or the New England colonies to be more specific, actually played an important role in the golden age of piracy, a period that spanned the late 1600s through the early 1700s. That's the subject of Eric J. Dolan's new book, Black Flags, Blue Waters, the epic history of America's most notorious pirates. He joined us to describe the relationship between pirates and the New England colonies But he started by telling us some of the remarkable stories of pirates from the Golden Age, including with the story of Sam Bellamy and the ship The Widow. Sam Bellamy and Paul's Grave Williams, two pirates that began their lives uh, coming out of New England, headed down to dive on Spanish treasure ships. They failed to get much money that way, so they veered into 
piracy, and they plundered about 50 ships, but that was nothing compared to when they overtook the Widda. The Widda had just sold 500 slaves in Port Royal on Jamaica, so they were loaded with silver and gold. So when Bellamy and Williams took over the Widda, they suddenly had a jackpot. They headed north, but they wouldn't be able to share the spoils of their success because in April of 1717, while they were sailing around the outstretched arm of Cape Cod, a nor'easter blew down the coast, smashed into the ship, sank the Widda, 161 pirates on board, uh, died, and all of that treasure sank to the bottom, and it stayed there for about 260-some-odd years until a salvager and diver named Barry Clifford and his men actually discovered the location of the Widda, only about 1,000 or 1,500 feet off the coast of Wellfleet on Cape Cod, and they started recovering the treasure. They even found the bell that said the Widda Galley, so they knew they had this treasure. And this is significant because it's the first authenticated pirate ship and treasure ever found, and they've been recovering treasure ever since. Uh, How much the treasure is worth, that's a matter of debate. An unreasonably low estimate is about $200,000. An improbably high estimate is about $400 million. But if you're ever on the Cape in West Yarmouth, there's the Witta Pirate Museum, which does a wonderful job of telling you the story of the Witta and how the treasure has been recovered. You you have a great survival story here. Uh, The man's name is Philip Ashton. Can you tell us his story? Yeah, Philip Ashton from my hometown of Marblehead, Massachusetts. He was a fisherman off of Nova Scotia in the summer of 1722 when a notorious, despicable, likely deranged pirate named Edward Lowe captured his fishing vessel and other fishing vessels and forced Ashton, among others, to become pirates. But Ashton was able to escape from the pirates' clutches in the Bay of Honduras, and he landed on Roatan Island, which was an uninhabited island. And he lasted there for almost two years, most of it entirely alone, until a brigantine from Salem, Massachusetts, right next to Marblehead, picked him up, brought him back to Marblehead. When he walked in the front door of his parents' house, they thought that he had risen from the dead because they had long assumed he was gone forever. And his story was a huge story in New England because William Defoe had written a very famous book in 1790 19 called Robinson Crusoe. Well, here it was in 1726 when Ashton comes back from the dead, and he was a real-life Robinson Crusoe, and the Americans could claim him. Well, who were these pirates, and why did they turn to this life? Pirates were generally, the pirates that I talk about, were generally of English descent or from the American colonies. There were other Uh, countries that are represented as well. And there were any number of reasons that they turned to piracy. All of them at root had one common goal, and that was to get rich. There were tales of pirates in olden days, I mean, before the 1600s and 1700s that I talk about, that had attacked ships and gained considerable treasure. And other pirates sought to emulate them by becoming pirates themselves. There were many ways in which people would turn to piracy. One was after a war had concluded, all of the privateers and naval men who had been engaged in the war, many of them found themselves suddenly unemployed. And uh, especially the privateers who had the skills of a pirate, many of them just transferred uh, almost seamlessly 
into piracy. Also, many sailors who found their captains to be particularly abusive or dictatorial would often rise up and mutiny. And once they had taken over the ship, they would turn to piracy as well. Another lure to piracy was the sinking of treasure fleets off of uh, Florida coast. People went down there to dive on the treasure fleets to try to recover the treasure. Some were successful, some weren't. But either way, many of them, once in the Caribbean, decided to try their hands at piracy. But pirates were very much like gamblers going into a casino. People always have an over-expectation of success Mm -hmm. and an under-expectation of failure. And most pirates failed to achieve any great riches at all. And many of them died after a relatively short career. But the hope of plundering a valuable treasure ship was enough to get many men to throw their lot in with their fellow pirates and go to sea to rob whatever ships they could. So, so let's go back to the 1600s and, and early American colonies. And and I wonder if you can talk about the support that many colonists had for pirates, which in some ways makes makes a whole lot of sense, but it's a it's a fairly interesting history. Tell us about this. Right. In the late 1600s, there were these pirates called the Red seamen, uh, which had sort of replaced the buccaneers of earlier days. And these men would come from the colonies, and they would travel in their ships around the Cape of Good Hope into the Indian Ocean, where they would attack Mughal shipping that was transiting between India and the Red Sea ports of Jeddah and Mocha. And a lot of these pirates came from the colonies. They were the fathers, the sons, the brothers of other colonists. And they brought back valuable and much-needed treasure to the colonies, and the colonies welcomed them back because it was not viewed as being particularly bad to go halfway around the world and attack quote-unquote heathens and infidels, rob them of their treasure, and bring it back to the colonies, which were traditionally starved of currency by the mother country and often forced to buy goods with currency. So here was this ready source of money that was being brought back to the colonies by colonists. So they were truly welcomed with open with open arms. And the pirates needed the colonists' help too. Right. Pirates, like anybody else, need to have supplies. They need to careen their ships and scrape all the foul matter off the bottom of their ships, and they need a support system. So the colonies in the late 1600s provided the pirates with an extremely valuable support system, much like the Bahamas uh, served in the 1700s as a place for the pirates to repair to, repair their ships, reprovision, divvy up the loot. Colonies were the pirates' home base during the late 1600s. Were there hotbeds of piracy in the New England colonies, places where where pirates would, would hang out and, and be part of the population? Yes, we have to look at the distinction between the 1600s and the 1700s. In the late 1600s, Newport, uh, Boston were definitely places where pirates repaired to. In 1684, the governor of Jamaica noted that Boston was a place where pirates had brought more than 80,000 pounds sterling into the town, and many of them had settled there, and it was considered to be a receptacle of pirates of all nations. Newport as well was known to be a pirate haven during the late 1600s. But what happened after the War of the Spanish Succession, even though piracy exploded, at this time the pirates were no longer attacking Indians or Mughal ships halfway around the world. They were attacking 
English merchant vessels, many of which were issuing from the colonies. So all of a sudden, whereas before the colonists viewed pirates in a favorable light since they were benefiting from the pirates, now those pirates were attacking colonial ships. So that encouraged the colonists to come out against pirates. And as a result, the pirates had no places within the colonies, New England or further to the south, to come in and reprovision and spend their money at grog shops. They were considered persona non grata, and they were forced to go down to the Bahamas. And then finally, in 1718, when the, the Bahamas were retaken by the British Navy, they were sort of at literally and figuratively at sea fighting for themselves, getting more desperate all the time as the government clamped down on them. Eric J. Dolan is the author of Black Flags, Blue Waters, the epic history of America's most notorious pirates. You can find an excerpt of the book on nextnewengland.org. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on. We're going to leave you with an ad on Craigslist. Like many of the oddball things you can find in this online marketplace, there's often a great story behind the ad. For example, right now there's a guy looking to swap beachfront property in Fiji for land in northern New Hampshire. Todd Bookman from NHPR wanted to learn a little bit more, so he reached out to the man who was making this seemingly lopsided arrangement. You may dig New Hampshire. Your cup may overfloweth with 603 pride. But man, Fiji. Fiji sounds good. Yeah, I'm at home. Yeah, we're just going to walk to the store and get some uh, coconut milk for the coffee. This is Todd Gear. Todd with one D, on the hunt for some fresh coconut milk. I reached him on his cell phone. Good. We will have a slight delay, so um, sometimes my folks will say, um, they'll, they'll say something, then they'll go, over. Oh, so you want to pretend like we're using walkie-talkies? Over. <laughs> yeah. Well, sometimes it actually works. Gear lives on Fiji's main island. To make a little money, he's let tourists take pictures with his pet boa constrictors. It costs extra to wrap them around your neck, but that's a different story for a different time. A couple of years ago, Gear bought some land on another Fijian island. It's six acres, totally private, with a long stretch of shoreline. Gear shot a short video that he links to in the Craigslist post. There are no roads to the property, so you have to boat in. He hops off the skiff, wades through the clear water. There are coral reefs, nearby diving spots. And then he climbs up the hillside. Okay, I'm on top of the, uh, what I would call the, great, the greatest spot to build a place on this uh, six acres. Right on top of the bluff, there's the water. So this would be your view of the house right here. Gear's plan when he bought the land was to build his own house here. But he never got it together to arrange for the construction. He's now 60 years old and decided it's better to let someone else take it on. I just thought, well, I'll go back to New Hampshire and buy a little place. And, and I thought, well, maybe I can swap this land. Gear knows New Hampshire. A while back, when he was still living and working in his native California, he bought an old church in Wolfboro that he planned to turn into a bed and breakfast. It was going to be his retirement job. He'd spent 25 years as a Los Angeles firefighter. But then the Wolfboro church plan got, you could say, sidetracked. Well, when I decided to retire from the fire department, and I owned the church then, the fire department captain said, um, hey, you're going to have to use your sick time up or you're going to lose it. So I said, plenty good. I'm going back to Fiji. So I called in sick, headed down here for about 10 days. Todd Gear had vacationed in Fiji a bunch of times. He'd hang out, sail around the islands. And on this trip in 2004, he ran into a friend. And she introduced him to a local woman named Paulina. 
said, hey, you want to go have dinner? And she said, okay. Uh, a couple of dinner dates turned into an overnight stay, and then I went back and worked one more day in the fire department and retired. Went back to New Hampshire and kept working on my church to get that opened up. And So um, I just happened to call Paulina, and I just mentioned, hey, it was nice to meet you. You know, I'll be back in a couple months. I'm back in New Hampshire working on my place, and da-da-da. I just said, so, are you pregnant? <laughs> she said, yeah, I am. I was just kind of being cocky. So, so, are you pregnant? And she said, yeah. How, how old were you at that point, Todd? I was 46. And how old was Paulina? <laughs> 22. Just one of those things. Yeah, we're still, we're still friends. She's, Paulina, since uh, married, she married a uh, policeman here and had four more kids more boys and another daughter. So in light of this new situation, Gear put the Wolfboro bed and breakfast on hold and moved to Fiji full-time to raise his new daughter, Caitlin. She's grown up on the island, spending time with both Todd and Paulina. And every so often, Todd and Caitlin have traveled to the U.S., including to New Hampshire. They even stayed in the Wolfboro church for a while before he sold it off. But Caitlin was too young to be away from her mom, so they kept returning to Fiji. Now, though, Caitlin is a teenager, And she and her dad have a plan. They want to spend a year living in the U.S. She wants to go to school here. She's been to the States about nine, ten times since she was born. She loves malls and, you know, corn dogs and movie theaters and all that kind of stuff. And Gear figured, well, New Hampshire, it'd be a good spot. So he's looking for land or a small camp near the mountains, maybe in Franconia or Littleton or Lancaster. Caitlin can do the malls and corn dogs. And he can do the things here that Fiji doesn't offer. I love New Hampshire. I just, I, ski areas all around, the lakes, I ice boat, motorcycle, I love motorcycle riding on the backcountry roads, that kind of stuff. So. It may not have turquoise waters and fresh coconut milk, but for gear, there's plenty to like. And that's how he came to post his Fiji land on the New Hampshire Craigslist page. He says it's worth about 190000 bucks, and that an even trade or a house plus some cash would be ideal. There haven't been any serious bites yet, but if nothing comes through, he's content holding on to his oceanfront spot. I still enjoy Fiji. I love it here. Todd Gear strikes me as the type of person who could be happy anywhere. The South Pacific, the North Country, or a little of both if a good deal comes his way. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. And you can follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Our show is produced by Lily Tyson. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. We had special help this week from Glenn Alexander. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill, and you can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, The Publix Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio. 